and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Good morning. Welcome. We're going to sing in a, again in a few moments, but I wanted to, um, first of all, welcome you this morning. And also to start with um, something that I've read recently, because when Joel was sharing a little bit earlier this week with me about what he was intending to bring, it reminded me of this thing that I'd read, and I thought it would set him up nicely if I just shared it with you to begin with. Um, In the 1980s, apparently, the world was waking up to the fact that it had a plastics problem, as in, you know, plastic material. Because it was this thing that had been made was now so cheap and versatile, it was everywhere. So people's rubbish bins at home were spilling over with plastic and it was appearing in streets and by roadsides and in rivers and places. And people were like, ah, yeah, we've made something great here in one sense, but it's going to create a real problem. So in the US, the plastics industry was very worried because they knew one of two things was going to happen. Either because it was generating this waste problem, there was going to be some tougher regulations from politicians saying, yeah, great, get you making money off this, but this can't happen. Or someone was going to come up with an alternative. And there was a crucial point where the image of plastic was beginning to deteriorate um, past the point of no return. People were not going to see this as a good idea anymore. And so they were like, we're going to have to act. So did they own the problem for what it was and admit that they had something that actually perhaps wasn't all it was cracked up to be. No, they didn't, because by then they were profiting off it, they'd invested a lot in it, and it had to continue. So what they did was they reframed the problem. Because stopping manufacture was not now an option, because they were too far in, they said, let's take the heat off the fact that waste is our problem and make it someone else's problem. So the strategy was this, okay, we will admit that waste is a problem, but what we will do is label all the plastic that's in the world with recycling images so that then the waste becomes the problem of whoever of you choose not to recycle it. So if there is waste, it's your fault. Very, very clever, and they spent millions and millions of pounds on this campaign and putting recyclable labels on all of the plastic so that basically they could say, you solve it. It's now your responsibility. So this waste you see in the world is now your fault. Very, very clever. And for me, there's lots and lots of um, parallels, um, which I won't go into because I won't take Joel's time. But it's basically, they said, you know, you are the culprits. You know recyclers, you. But guess what? If you adopt recycling behavior, 
you don't need to feel bad anymore because you're solving it. So they made us the problem, gave us the behavior, and then congratulated us on solving it. But the real sucker punch is that actually recycling has been proven and shown to be a bit of a red herring. It's actually costly, expensive. It doesn't fully work, and only about 10% of the recycling actually is recycled. And whoa, it's big, but it's very clever. And so some of our behaviors can be because we feel the need to somehow appease a guilt that was assigned to us to solve a different problem. And actually, I think what some of the thoughts that Joel's going to bring this morning is going to really raise the question, what if the guilt that we have been assigned at any point in our life was actually a reframed problem that was never our problem to start with. So I hope that makes you excited about what you're going to hear this morning. <laughs> good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. <clears throat> Life is a gift. I want to enjoy it. Always proving my worth only destroys it. I am already enough. Everything I need is within me. It can almost be a bit cliche sometimes saying stuff like that, you know, well, it's just, it's already within me. But I'm not sure whether that's something we genuinely believe still. Um, and I'm hoping to dissect a little bit of that today. Um, Claire showed the clip of Anth last week, stating that the vast majority of the church's focus has been from Genesis 3, where it supposedly all went wrong, rather than on the first two chapters, focused solely on blessing, purpose, potential, life. Light, goodness, creation, relationship, connection, well-being, and productivity. I mean, that's quite exciting. Even when you just say those words, it, it brings forth a sense of, oh, that's good. I thought what Claire brought um, about sound last week was really great, and I thought it was very fitting, um, in that here at Q, we really do have a sound and we're trying to honor that sound and stay true to that sound because we know that ultimately um, it's an essential part of not only the journey of us as a community, but also what we're sharing with many people in, in various walks um, of life. Now, when I spoke a few weeks ago, I mentioned how we had been encouraged to separate church and the world as totally different entities. I don't remember when I did that little slot a few weeks back. The spiritual and the secular it has often been accepted that the church as an institution is the only structure that houses fundamentalist ideas and dogmas. This couldn't be further from the truth. It's not about the building, but the ideas that govern it. And just like the church throughout history, heretics are punished and those who sway from the official narrative can be ostracized and outlawed. Now we can see this playing out in real time in many facets of modern day life today. Most people will have heard the theology of original sin. Have you all heard of the term original sin? We have spent countless hours over the years here at Q delving into these concepts, including things like the penal substitutionary atonement theory, sacrifice versus covenant, appeasement, wrath, guilt, and many more. And more than ever, I'm almost going back there now um, because I realized we covered so much good stuff, you know. Um, absolutely brilliant, fantastic stuff that 
it's amazing how when you go back, you realize how much you miss or how much you haven't heard or, or that now says something different to you because of the journey that you've walked and makes more sense. Um, now, I would say that these have been some of the most transformative ideas in our journey of freedom to explore and discover a more authentic and beautiful gospel. I would also add, they have been the ideas that have also upset people calling for us to be cancelled. I have to throw that in there. It's not just all good, right? In the respects of whenever you decide to challenge a narrative, yes, it's going to create a certain amount of freedom for those who are looking to deconstruct, but some found it, have found it, and, you know, still are quite difficult, and that's why it's part of the ever-evolving conversation. One could argue when you wrestle with that which is held as a foundational belief of a particular movement, whichever that movement may be, it is bound to create friction and disagreement because the very pattern that people have lived their lives by is torn apart. More than ever, I find the idea of original sin not only to be reprehensible, but I also see it as the overarching concept that facilitates so many of today's movements. Now, I'm going to give you a little brief history of original sin. Now, this can go a little bit further because I, I, I don't have all day. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this, right? Um, but original sin was taught by St. Augustine, okay, a theologian and philosopher. Between the years of around 354 to 430 AD, somewhere in that, in that time block. Um, now, it is a theology, so it was an idea and a concept and a theory based on particular views of the person who founded the idea, okay? Now, Augustine held that sin, and Chris taught about this a lot. I'm going to touch just on the brief part of it before I delve into what I want to talk about. He held that sin was inherited from our parents. It wasn't that we were just born with the propensity to make errors or do wrong. I'm not even sure whether I fully believe that, but you get my idea. But that we all inherit Adam's guilt according to which mankind bears the forced, without choice, corporate responsibility for the so-called first sin of man. Does that make sense? Quite extreme, you could say, for someone eating an apple, right? I mean, not to make light, but you hear what I'm it's a very extreme view for something that you could say was very specific to a, a point in time, to a particular person, to a particular experience, yeah? Now, with this view came four categories, right? One was corporate identity. We and Adam are one of the same and therefore bear the guilt his bad choices. The second one was participation. We were all in Adam at the time of the fall. I mean, I don't know how they figured that one out. I don't know how I can be in somebody 2,000 years ago, do you know, to get the idea. Um, representation. Adam was our representative in Eden and sinned on our behalf. Okay. The last one is inherited corruption. I mean, this one, I was like, inherited corruption. We aren't guilty because of Adam's sin specifically, 
but we are inherently corrupted because of his transgression. So that's four sub lines that came from that. Now, I don't want to go too biblical here because I've got lots to cover in how this links into modern society. Um, but you may be interested to know how this kind of was formulated. Um, now, sorry, I'd like to add in here as well that how you define the word sin will ultimately change how you hear this, right? And again, I can't go into all that. We've talked about it a lot before, but I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on it again at some point. Um, but yeah, your view of sin will ultimately affect how you view this, this whole topic. Um, now, it came about by a Latin translation. I just need one slide. I did give you two, but I'm, I'm, I only really need the one, uh, just so you can see here. And it's very, very subtle. Um, Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people in whom... Now, I talked earlier, we were all in Adam, in whom all sinned. That was what the Latin said, in whom, which is what Augustine took, in whom. Now, in the Greek, it says, because all sin. Now, it's very different, right? In whom all sinned is a collectivization that we were in Adam, and it's collectivized that that one thing, we are now part of that narrative, because all sin suggests that we face the death and the consequence as Adam did because of our own decision within our own specific circle of life making exodus. Now that to me makes far more sense, right? Because it's about individual responsibility. Now there are a few others which I'm not going to go into, but that was the main premise of where original sin as a theology was founded, right? That's it. This is the only real basis for the doctrine. Now, it swept through the Christian religion like wildfire, right? The rest of the Old and New Testament, including Jesus, doesn't refer really to original sin. Um, and yet it has been used as a club for centuries and still to this day. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail. Now, the early church held sin more as an idea of separation and living against one's divine nature, whilst Augustine shifted the language as to us being fundamentally sinful. Do you see the difference in sound there, right? So sin was the idea that we were separate from our divine nature, living against what we were born to be, right? Our innate being. Augustine shifted that language to us being fundamentally flawed, I also find it remarkable that this doctrine is what ultimately led there to being need for a sacrifice and atonement, hence why Jesus' death was eventually perceived through this very lens. Then, of course, there was hell and eternal damnation. This all then comes into play. And I think I remember Chris talking about the whole dangling the babies over the fire of hell or something. I mean, you know, wild, some of the things that they came up with. Um, you see, take away original sin as a concept, as what Augustine came up with. The whole trajectory of Jesus changes. Now, I'm going to throw this out there because some of you are probably already very upset with me for bringing this, but, okay, I want to throw in here this. Jesus makes more sense to me than ever. So you will think that I'm somehow under, maybe undermining here 
the narrative of Christ. It's actually the opposite. This has brought me to more of a radical understanding of what Jesus was trying to share with people than what I understood before. So much so, just to throw this out there, I have recently connected with a guy who's, who's an atheist um, who is absolutely blown away by our grasp now on what Jesus was trying to express of the faulty narrative that people had believed about God. And I found that, that has really stirred me on because I thought that is incredible that the Jesus I'm talking about makes sense to him. And I think, well, where, how did we go wrong there? You know, it's like all of a sudden this guy's saying, well, if that's what it is, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm okay with that. So to me, it is more of a beautiful gospel that far, far more people can, can grasp. I just thought I'd, uh, I'd share that. Um, okay, next bit. Once it is, it is accepted that humans are inherently flawed, all the theological focus becomes about fixing sin. Jesus and the cross ultimately become about sin management and saving us from the lake of fire. Sacrifice and appeasement has been a concept dating back to some of the earliest religions. I'm talking about ancient, ancient, ancient times. And again, when we used to do in deep, remember when we used to look back at some of the, the how they'd taken certain ideas from earlier, earlier religions and ideas. So just, I'll give you one. The Aztecs, for example, right? They believed that God had to sacrifice himself for mankind to exist. And this led to mankind owing back sacrifices for them to be granted life in return. Their God required blood to appease it in the hope of a good future. Now, it's interesting, again, when you go back and even read the Old Testament, when you look at how God was interacting with people, even terms like, you know, I want your heart, not sacrifice. You know, scriptures like that, or, you know, even the whole thing of Isaac. Do you honestly think that I'm like those gods? that would demand that you would do that. No, I'm not, I'm not like that. And yet, for some reason, we've still managed to parallel this God with the ancient gods that taught this theology. Now, now what's the problem with it? Because we have to analyze what is the issue or the potential problem of this theology. Now, original sin holds that man is inherently evil not because of his personal flaws or errors, not because of you as an individual and your choices, but simply just because you exist. I find that really, just simply because you exist, if we go with this theology. It is akin to a hereditary condition that has, you have no control over. It is then demanded that he be good and holy yet impossible to achieve if your very nature is already bad. This theology demands that we view ourselves not as a standard of value, potential, and goodness, but as someone subject to a life of penance and atonement, appeasing the guilt of our existence before a wrathful and vengeful God. So not as a standard of value. You see, if you start from this point or start from this point, you're going to end up with very, very different results. If we are guilty through no choice of our own, this takes away human will, power, 
an individual responsibility to change, become, grow, expand, and develop. Now, as I mentioned when I spoke a few months back, it creates the perfect storm for self-effacement and a lack of self-esteem. And I just think that's uh, yeah, it's such an interesting one. You are subordinate to a God that rigged the game in order that without a savior, you can never win. I, I can't get with that because I, that's not the God I read or the Jesus that I, that I understand. It, it just isn't. Now, there is something so misanthropic about this. I love that word. It just means anti-human. Yeah, it's a word I discovered, misanthropic. About this whole idea, it leads those involved in the doctrine, get this, and, and I discussed this with Chris, Chris this week on, on some of our conversation, desperate for the world to end. Hear that? It becomes so misanthropic, i.e. our view of man and one another, that we become desperate for it all to end. Now, any of you who were brought up in, in the church, it was all about getting somewhere else, wasn't it? Right? Jesus coming back, the second coming, right? The rapture. Where at least one's virtue can be held in their acceptance of the Saviour, that it secured them a place in the next life with God. I, I, don't, I personally don't see that as a positive gospel, yeah? Because I feel like I want to live here and now with a God that sees me as a standard of value, not as something that needs to be fixed. Does that make sense? Now, now when I say this, hear me out. Does that not all mean that as we walk through our journey of life, there are not things that might need to be fixed? Yes, because that's the contrast of life. We're dealing with positive, negative all the time based on our experiences. The difference is, is what we say is the ultimate outcome of that and whether we're condemned in the process or whether, like I said, I am already enough, everything is within me. It's a divine story, not a, um, what, a, con a, condemn a condemnation one, right? Now, original sin as the philosophy driving the modern world, what do I mean by this and how does it apply to our everyday life. Now, as mentioned earlier, original sin and the subsequent need for sacrifice is the theology driving much of our world at present. It really is. And much of this is founded on the same concept that, now hear me out, Eden, so go back to, to before, you know, the, the fall and original sin, perfection is the desired state and, and what should have been the natural order, and that we must figure out a way to get back to that at all cost. It's about getting back to perfection and that which is perfect. Now, if we're now no longer perfect because of a decision that was made and a transgression that was caused, and we can never achieve that now, the only alternative is to somehow get it after all through mass sacrifice in this life, through things like dogmas and, and ways of controlling people to somehow make it attain that perfection and utopia that people want to achieve. Now, if Eden is held as perfection, right, as one accepts that they have ultimately fallen from this, 
The desire is to achieve a kind of paradise and utopia. And if it can't be experienced in this life, then it will certainly be achieved in the next. Hence why the drive of the evangelicals was about getting people to heaven as far away as possible from this sinful world. Now I'm going to read this to you. I sang it to Jenny earlier, but she'd never heard it before. Where is it? Any of you who know it can get out your tambourines. Right. So, there's going to be a meeting in the air. In the sweet, sweet by and by. I'm going to meet you, meet you over there, in that home beyond the sky. Such singing will you hear, never heard by mortal ear. T'will be glorious, I do declare. And God's own son will be the leading one at the meeting in the air. It gets better. This is the best verse. Many things there will be missing in that meeting. For the mourner's bench will have no place there at all. There will never be a sermon preached to sinners, for the sinners had refused to heed the call. There will be no mourning over wayward loved ones. There will be no lonely nights of pleading prayer. All our burdens and anguish will be lifted in that meeting in the air. Next one. There the doubters will be missing altogether. Not allowed in. All the skeptics will be absent on that day. There will be no grumblers present to disturb us. You disturbing grumblers, you. And the, what, are the, what are the Aikens? I've never heard that word before. We'll be busy far away. Anybody now? No? Okay, we'll, we'll throw that line. A typo, maybe, no? This might have been just, yeah, we'll leave that line. We can edit that bit. There the saints will have a seal upon their forehead, dressed in the raiment none, but ransom ones can wear. All who have the wedding garment will be present at that meeting in the air. Now, why have I read that? You can see it's a kind of utopia. It's a kind of everything will be fine once we get there, and anybody who isn't part of that will be left behind. Now, why have, why have I said that? Because again, it parallels with what we're seeing, seeing today. What are some practical examples? Now, don't stone me, but I'm going to be very honest here, right? I'm giving my thoughts, and I hope you hear my heart, hear the sound and how it links. Take climate alarmism, ism, right? The idea that man, and Jenny brought this beautifully at the beginning, set it up great, is re collectively responsible for the destruction of the planet as we know it. And ultimately, the only way to fix it, even if you as an individual have committed no crime, or do your best as a responsible citizen, is to sacrifice your life on the altar of change to appease the climate gods. Here I'm, I'm paralleling it here, right? You hear comments like this. If we didn't have as many humans, it would all be okay. Here's another one. Humans just ruin everything. Here's another one. It's selfish for people to have babies. 
Here's another one. The earth would flourish without people. Do you hear the parallel vibe, right? It is such an anti-human perspective that doesn't actually promote responsible, rational change, but rather a scorn towards human existence. Here's another one. Take the last three years. It was presented that humans are, are diseased, right? That we are guilty until proven innocent. I remember clearly the strap line, behave as though you have it even if you don't. You hear? Inherited, transgressed, sin. The basic narrative that there was no sacrifice too big to eliminate all possibility of risk. Whilst many, and it's fine, will have varying views and opinions, which is good, right? That's all part of the evolving conversation. The constant message that our very being is toxic and that we are being harmful to others is severely damaging to our emotional and spiritual well-being, as well as our perception of one another. Right? I'm only saying these so you can see the parallel of what we're seeing in our world today. Here's another one. How about BLM versus white privilege? Right? I'm just saying it very clearly as, as it came to me. The idea that the color of your skin carries with it the sins of your forefathers and that reparations and atonement must be accepted in order to appease the crime. I'm just being honest with you. Yeah, I'm just sharing my heart. And that has that okay, has there been injustices and crimes committed? 100% yes, I would always stand by that. However, you could talk for decades about in every single country around the world of wrongs and errors. But you could also talk about successes and the most incredible things that have been achieved. So does it exist? Of course it does. But to assign these as on a collective scale not only removes the responsibility from the individual, it doesn't actually fix anything. In fact, all it does is the opposite. It brings with it a sense of apathy, bitterness, and resentment. You see, it's all based in condemnation and the idea that you can win redemption through various rituals and narratives. This is where the idea of altruism comes in, which if you want to hear more about that, it's, it's on the archive on, on Q. Those who submit to the sacrificial requests are elevated as holy and virtuous. Those who refuse are often stigmatized for their moral depravity. We have in, out, sheep, goats, heaven, hell, saved, sinners. Do you see where I'm taking you here? I hope you do. I hope you understand that this is about understanding how this applies to everyday life. And the important part of this is this. When we were learning what we learned, particularly before we started the deconstructive process, it was all very theoretical. And we had so much knowledge, but didn't know what to do with it. And more than ever now, and, and I say this often, I use this term, I see the parallels so clearly in what was being taught in Scripture to what we see today. Like I said the other week, these things are taught to us as lessons as we not repeat history. Incidentally, and I feel that this is really helpful um, in the journey that I was walking when I was putting this together, have you all heard of the ter term scientific modeling? It's been talked about a lot recently. 
Uh, and I discussed this with, uh, with Hannah the other day, and it was, it was great. Um, the idea with scientific modeling is, because as AI develops, the idea is we've got a blend of human mind and machine mind, which is quite terrifying, really. But the, the idea is that man or science inputs a particular idea or thought into a machine based on what they perceive to be the current situation. And the machine then formats, based on that information, what the trajectory is of what it believes, it, because it's not human, remember, it believes to be the outcome based on what you've put in. Now, humans, we know, are not perfect, right, in the respects of we all have biases, we all have judgments, we all have preconceived ideas. Depending on what you put in is going to be what you get out. Now, isn't it interesting that similarly to the interpretation of the original sin scripture and ultimately what that led us to perceive here to here along the line that this is now what's happening in day-to-day -day life. If you put in something as a particular idea, what that trajectory will end up as being will be something potentially, something you never imagined would end up being the end result. And I think that's something very important to think about. So for example, if you put in original sin, the model you get will be X. But if you input original blessing, you will get a very different reading on the model over here. So why is this theology such a problem, right? All of it leaves people feeling guilty for living life. And I'm not just talking about Christianity, I'm talking about all of the even others. And you even might find that as I've been speaking to you today, you think, wow, this group that I've been talking to or thinking, that now makes sense as to why this is happening. And if that's so, then that's great because you can start to see it for, for what it truly is. The healthiest people and the healthiest societies are the ones that hold a sense of dignity and a rational view of both their successes and their failures. If you want short-term obedience, then scare people. If you want to spark change, then build self-esteem by promoting value. The theology of original sin prevents us from seeing the world as created for connection and beauty. Instead, it replicates the view that we are separate from God, we are at odds with our true self, and believe there is no way to integrate them. It created with it the need for salvation. So Jesus is then seen as a means to an end to fix sin, rather than the tangible reminder of how wrong we've got it in our view of God and the divine world. And again, I stand by that. You're gonna, if any of you want to try and change my mind, you're going to struggle with that one. Because to me, Jesus now represents something so immensely powerful, so radically life-changing, so unbelievably coherent in what it is to be human and to live my life on earth the kingdom of heaven is now within, right? It's not about getting somewhere else. It's about what you experience now here on earth. Just like with the church, it becomes less about actually becoming a more fruitful human being 
and instead about micromanaging and altering human behavior. This was the biggest conflict between the religious institution of the biblical day and Jesus. He was telling people to butt out and leave people alone. <laughs> um, the stigmatization of human ambition undermines our ability to create, experiment, and innovate, which ultimately, get this, fixes and heals the problems facing our world. And I start, I'm going to read that again. The stigmatization of human ambition undermines our ability to create, experiment, and innovate, which ultimately fixes and heals the problems facing our world. The whole idea of Eden and man's relationship to God was this. Be fruitful. Go forth. Subdue. Increasing number. It's pro-human. It's a pro-human sentiment. God created man in his own image. Go forth, replicate, take the fruitfulness of the garden into the barrenness of the world. Take it, take it out there. And one should have a sense of pride for life and love for this earth, which belongs to you. It belongs to you. <clears throat> so in closing, thank you so much for listening, by the way. I know it's um, been quite long, but... <clears throat> so just final few thoughts. Over the next few months, we're going to be having lots of different talks and different contributions. Um, from this, it leads you down a few different paths. And I mean, I, I could just keep talking now about then appeasement and unearned guilt and wrath and all of these things that we've touched on before. Um, but my next talk is going to be about appeasement and how this leads to the, con the concept of that. Um, and I know. Hannah as well has got a few thoughts on this that she'd like to bring from her journey and her religious perspective, which is fantastic because some of the thoughts that she was sharing with me, I'm thinking, wow, I feel like that's better. Do you know, like from some of the th things that, that I understood, so I think it'd be great to share those thoughts. So we'll get a week booked in for that. But just finishing off today, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now again, if we read that on the basis of original sin, I have come to sacrifice myself that you might have life, as in get to the next life and have it in all its fullness, right? Again, we can see it as a, a next thing. No, I have come that I can share with you the real meaning for life and what it means and that you can live it now more abundantly, more at peace, with more contentment than you've ever done before. The idea that we can experience life in its full, uncontested beauty. The idea that we can accept our inherent value, to grasp that your life is yours, that you are not a sacrificial animal in bondage, to unearned shame and unearned guilt, and that bondage has never been necessary for your story. It is the serenity of knowing that you can be free from fear. And ultimately, that's, that's what it's about. Being, most of the things governing these narratives are fear-based. It's fear. And what have we learned? The opposite to fear is faith. 
often the issue of faith is a lack of love, right? You can see how it all links. And I think, first of all, it's love for oneself, love for knowing that the divine, we're at one with the divine, and ultimately that will bring about a more pro-human perspective that we have love for ourselves and therefore love for one another. So I really hope that's helped. I hope it's clear. I hope it's taking you on a journey of thought to consider a few things. If you've got any questions, don't come and ask. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> but yes, anyway, look, it's all part of the conversation. I've loved putting this together in the respects of that it shares where I am on my journey. And I'm looking forward to hearing some of the, for the other thoughts that are added over the coming weeks. So enjoy the rest of your day, guys. And I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>